This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue for my comic book collection. Any book for my collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 44th episode of the Quarterman Podcast, I'm looking at book three of Shadow, Song of the Dragon, from DC Comics, cover dated March 1992. But first, a little feedback. Shlomo from romspacenightart.blogspot.com wrote in, Good review on what I thought was a well-written series, and graphic, too, in its own way. Also, if you ever find any copies of Mike Grell's early 80s Warlord series in those discount-back-issue bins, I highly recommend you check them out. I have definitely done that, Shlomo. I've talked about my love for Warlord here, and I even talked about Warlord number 50, a great issue, by the way, really pulling together and, and culminating those first four years of Grell's run on Warlord really shows him playing the long game and really pulling together the, the long adventure that had been going on. When I talked about that issue, issue 50, over on the Fire and Water podcast, when they did a discount comic extravaganza episode, episode 92, and of course, included me, thank you. That show, of course, is hosted by the Irredeemable Shag and Rob Kelly, at least one of whom is a faithful listener to this show. (laughs) Certainly when a warlord comes up on the randomizer, I'll definitely be covering one over here, too. Looking forward to your Checkmate 17 podcast, I have several books from that Greg Rucka series. I really like how he interweaves contemporary geopolitics into his stories. Speaking of that episode, Shlomo then wrote in about episode 42, the Checkmate issue. Let's see if we lived up to his expectations. Hey, Prof. Allen, that was another great episode. You always keep your episodes to the perfect running time. I did want to address the running time comment here. I really like where we've been with episode lengths. With the exception of guest episodes, we've landed pretty solidly in the 25 to 35 minute range or really close to that. Once we get past the epic, epic, epic episode 50 coming up, I think we'll experiment with occasionally covering more than one issue in an episode to be able to cover longer minis or episode runs. And I think those might get to 40 or 45 minutes. But in general, I like the idea of keeping episodes in this basic range that that we've been doing with guest episodes or other special episodes being the exception. Shlomo confesses here that he also did a comic book collection purge back in the day, but no friggin' way would I give up my ROM collection along with all the tie-ins. Same goes for my Suicide Squad books. As for Checkmate Volume 2, it should be noted that the series was cancelled only a few issues after Rucka's departure from the title as its writer. For fans of Rucka and Checkmate, I highly recommend The OMAC Project. It's some of his best work, especially in regards to how he wrote Sasha Bordeaux and Maxwell Lord. Yeah, I, I've heard good things about the OMAC project, and, and probably do need to move that one up higher on the old pick-these-up-when-you-can list. And again, I continue to 
just generally hear good thing about Greg Rucka's comic writing. Jason Trenner also sent in a brief email about Checkmate. Brief. Probably because he couldn't figure out how to tie the issue into the Transformers. Sounds like a good read. Was about all he could come up with for commentary. But back to Rom in episode 40, our old buddy Noel C.T. from the Masters of Carpentry podcast, among other things, wrote in, His show, by the way, is not about woodworking. It's about the movies of John Carpenter. Noel talked about the rights issues, and I think he's on to something here. The way I remember hearing it is that it isn't so much Hasbro and Parker Brothers who are withholding the rights of the Rom character from Marvel, but rather the estates of the three guys who originally created the toy independently sold it but kept back partial ownership. I should also point out that the content of the ad you played was indeed inspired by the comic, because all that came with the character in terms of the universe and backstory was his name and the names and descriptions of his weapons. Everything else was Mantlo and Marvel. Noel adds that Jim Shooter has recently been trying to take credit for some of it too, but that's just Shooter being Shooter. The issue with the rights that Noel mentions here makes sense to me, As I've said all along, there has to be something else going on here. I figured it was something with rights being partially pledged or collateralized in another business deal, but it may be as simple as the original creators retaining the rights and ownership that they did not specifically license to Marvel. And remember that Marvel doesn't own ROM, and neither specifically does does Hasbro or, or Parker Brothers totally. In Marvel's case, it was a licensing deal, and they licensed very specific things and then created other things themselves. And so in an evolving legal and technological landscape, it's not always clear who has the exact rights to do what with a particular property and what payments or licensing fees would be required to do this, to do that, or the other. Noel continues about the episode itself. Great issue. Love how cinematic it is. It would make a cracking first act of a film, first episode of a TV series. In fact, what I loved about how Bill Mantlo plotted out his series is that he interwove ongoing threads and one-off stories in a way very similar to many television shows today. Just a genuine talent all the way around. And despite the one-note grimace of a lot of Sal Buscema faces... He's such a dynamic and powerful storyteller on the page that I always get pulled into the action and roll right past any of his shortcomings. Well put, Noel. Well put. Thanks for the feedback, guys. Keep those cards and letters coming. And now, let's move on to our issue for this episode. Shadow, Song of the Dragon Book 3, had a cover price of $4.95, meaning I acquired this issue at nearly a 95% off price tag. The cover, by Michael Davis Lawrence, shows Shadow. From the waist up, her mask pulled up over her mouth, her tattoo on display, holding her son. It's a nicely composed picture and a change of pace, what looks to be a mostly domestic scene. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but these are all wraparound covers. And when we open this fully, we see that a gun is in fact being pointed at the pair. 
as I close it, I can see that there is a bit of a glint at the very front of the barrel on the front cover. But I'll be honest, I didn't even notice that enough to, to you know to know that there would be another part of the cover. It's just sort of opening it up. You get that WTF moment that particular month of New 52 covers was supposed to do. And, of course, this was more than 20 years before the fact. That when you open up the whole page and look at that back cover, it, it, it puts the front cover in a different context. The story, A Force of Dragons, was written by Mike Grell with art by Michael Davis Lawrence and Gray Morrow. And yes, despite book two being titled A Force of Dragons, this one is actually supposed to be titled A Force of Dragons. The issue itself starts with a gorgeous and ominous two-page spread. The helicopters have landed, and a group of black-clad warriors have exited, guns drawn. The Yakuza warriors are on their way. Their black outfits against the green grass and the orange sky, like I said, it's gorgeous. And like I said, it's ominous. And this silent two-page spread sets the tone for a lot of what's to follow. Your brother has learned that you survived the slaughter at the temple, Shadow says to the monk, and to us readers, to remind us of the happenings of the prior two issues. The monk recommends that Shadow leave, as the brother just wants him, and the mystical secret-powered sword of power. But she refuses. If the sword falls into his hands, all your fellow monks will have died for nothing. Our party heads out to plan their defense, and the PTSD'd Black Vet just sits on the ground, catatonic. You aren't going to reach him, Mr. Ryan advises. Let him go. Shadow doesn't want to leave the man, but she has to. The monk, the older brother, finds a quiet, serene place to sit, awaiting attack. I believe you are looking for this, he says, holding the sword over his head. Beware, he warns, the professional assassins. Few can hold the dragon. Then he slices the three would-be killers in half. One smooth slice each. They are dead before they know what is happening. This is one spot where the book earns its mature reader labeling as blood spurts from the dead Yakuza. Mr. Ryan has set up trip lines which take out a few more via hand grenade. Another squad of Yakuza warriors research the area and are quickly dispatched by Shadow. Her biggest worry seems to be keeping her son quiet to not give away their hiding place. The invaders continue to go down one by one until one finds where Shadow has hidden her son. Holding him hostage, they draw Shadow out and take her captive as well. They prepare to execute her and her boy, but that triggers another flashback in the catatonic black Vietnam vet. The image of the Yakuza with an automatic weapon to the heads of Shadow and her son remind him of an event from the war where his team were ordered to kill scores of natives. He throws himself at the gunman, and he and Shadow rescue the son, and that snaps him out of his self-imposed mental exile. Along with Ryan and the monk, they take out more of the death squads. Others run back to their helicopter. We gotta stop them before they get away, the black vet says, the first full sentence he's spoken, and more than a hundred pages of story. Or we'll have an army on our asses. An army? Ryan asks in disbelief. What the hell do you call this? In an absolutely terrific action sequence, Shadow 
shoots one helicopter pilot, causing him to crash his vehicle, and the black vet jumps onto the skids of the other copters it flies off. The rest of the crew sees a body fall in the distance, and the helicopter returns. Shadow and the rest begin to flee, but when the chopper lands, they see that the black vet is at the controls. Get in! We better get the hell out of here. When these things don't come back, they'll be looking for them. In Tokyo, the younger brother, the Oyaban, has noted that the copters have not come back. My brother will waste little time now, but perhaps he can be provoked into a mistake. His upset at the failure of this mission costs his lieutenant a finger. The Oyaban calls a meeting of the other Yakuza factions. Shadow thanks the Black Vet for saving her son and refuses to let him shut the world out again. The brother Monk adds, There's something causing you great pain, but if you hide from it, you hide from the world as well. But I was 20 years too late, he says. And then he tells his story. My name's Richie. No, that's not right. I'm Max, Max Pearl. Richie's dead. 20 years before, Max and his best friend Richie enlisted right out of high school. They were separated after basic training, but joined up again in Vietnam. So one day in 69, we marched into this village. It was called My Lai, and something went wrong. We learned that Max was part of the infamous massacre, where villagers, mothers and children included, were lined up in a trench and mowed down. In the present day, Max tells Mr. Ryan, You should have said something, man. You should have warned us. We were your sons. Back in the Nam, the Viet Cong wipe out the company. But Max survived when his best friend Richie's body covered him. He decided then to die and put his dog tags on Richie. And he, Max, ceased to exist. Richie's folks are probably still wondering what happened to him. Nobody even thought of looking for me. I was dead. I am dead, you know. I even got my name on the wall. Shadow hugs him. Next issue. Conclusion. The Black Dragon. The Vietnam War. A conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents... The Nam. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nam. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. If you wake up with the blues, trying to fill your day with news, there's one thing you must remember, no agenda in the morning. 
For a healthy, balanced news diet, try NoAgendaShow.com. In the morning, 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 in the morning. Other monitoring systems and systems, special secret satellite systems, moon bases. Thank Joe Biden, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Adios, mofo. The best podcast in the universe. Dvorak.org slash N-A. And we're back. And I mean, this series is back. Shadow, Song of the Dragon, is back. In episode 41, I commented that book two of the series moved a little slow. That the ending was dramatic enough, sure, but the 44 pages before, well, just not a lot happened. But with this one, we're back. I still stand by my comments on book two that maybe Grell could have found a way to add some action to that issue, but that did make this one an incredibly action-packed read. And this time, the origin story, Max's story, fits into the the issue in a great way, in, in, in the natural lull following the pitched battle in which he shakes off his shell shock and snaps into action. In book one, the focus of the flashbacks was on Ryan, who I think I figured out was probably a Korea vet. That, that's how the timeline and the ages work out, I think, from, from what I can tell. And then in book two, the flashbacks were about Shadow and her origin. And here in book three, we get Max Pearl's story. And again, looking back at book two, I, I guess it makes sense that since Shadow is the title character, and theoretically the one that we come into the book already knowing a bit about, that her flashbacks should be the longest, should take up the most percentage of, of the book in, in which they appear. She's the one we're most invested in, but books one and three have been able to deliver that character stuff, the flashback stuff, which is really strong without slowing down the pace of the action, the fighty-fighty stuff. And, and even though as a standalone, book two was slow, I think as part of a whole, you know, setting aside a chunk of time and reading all four of these books back-to-back nowadays, that is less noticeable. But in, in looking at the story in the discrete chunks of pages that we get, one book per episode, reading these as, as, as separate issues, those differences become more obvious. And that is a nice structure to use for, for storytelling that, that, that Mike Grell has done here, where we have an overriding plot or action narrative, which serves as the structural framework for these individual character pieces. I like that mix. Stories that are just fight, 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 characters that are just fight, fight, fight. You know, that's that's not so much for me. I like this mix of character development and action, especially in a miniseries with a distinct ending. And, of course, I want the plot settled. I want one of the brothers to win and, and, and one to lose next issue for there to be resolution to the sword storyline. But I, I also want resolution for our team members, for Max and Mr. Ryan, and to some extent Shadow, even though she's an ongoing uh, character, so there are limits to any changes that she can undergo. So in a storyline like this, I like my plot threads tidied up at the end of the arc, but I also want there to be some noticeable character growth or character change, or as they say with ongoing comics, the illusion of change. I've mentioned the manga-style art of this series before, and this one does it the absolute best of the three issues so far. 
The art overall is really impressive. There are 18 totally silent pages, and seven with very little text. But in this issue, that just worked better than last issue, because there was enough stuff going on in the art. There was action. These were not pages that you just blow through. You stop, you take it in, and the art, including the coloring, uh, which is very strong, is just very nice to look at in addition to being part of the storytelling. You know, I mean, a, a sword cutting through someone at the midsection or lopping off a head, arrows through people's eyes. You want to look, you want to pay attention to the details of that fight. So the lack of words on most of those pages, it makes no difference at all to the reading experience, to the the storytelling process that's going on. In terms of the art, there were a number of split-screen effects on some of these pages, and they worked very well. There's a terrific two-page spread of shadow shooting at a team of attackers. The top 60% or so of the spread is split into three long panels. At the top is just Shadow's arm, and the dragon tattoo we see is actually crawling down into the next panel. That panel shows these ninja warrior guys in a clearing. The third panel is pulled a bit back from the top panel, so we see a side profile of Shadow's arm extended, and this time we see her clearly holding the bow. The bottom 40% of the spread is also three panels, but you know they're pretty square down there. And again, we alternate. The first of these, we see one of the bad dudes get an arrow in the throat. The second is a fuller profile of Shadow, and this is the first time on this page we see her face. And the last panel shows three of the four men already dead, and you know the last guy is seconds away from joining them. Another page I want to mention specifically is the first page of Max Pearl's flashback, talking about he and his buddy Richie enlisting. It's three long panels. The first shows them as probably ten-year-olds, then in the second in their dress uniforms at enlistment, and then in their combat gear in country. So you see this transition of time. And each of those panels is separately monochromatic, black ink, and then one other color. The single color in the first panel is red, the second white, and the third blue. It is a really well-composed page. And Max certainly knew what to do when he snapped out of his torpor. There's that dramatic scene where Max dives onto the helicopter, then it shrinks in the distance and a body plummets out from it, and then it ominously returns to our little band of heroes. And it's totally in our imagination. We don't know how he did it. All we know is what he did. And it was awesome. It is a, a great reveal when we see that he's the helicopter pilot. And no, you don't just get over shell shock like this. I, I call it that because I don't even know if PTSD had been coined yet as a diagnosis when this story is, is being released. So we know that Max Pearl still has emotional damage and has some hard psychological and or spiritual work ahead of him to get freedom you know, from the bondage that these, these memories have on him. But I have no problem with the idea that reliving a trauma can be a spark towards that healing, and that talking about it will also be a first step towards healing. And his story certainly gives context for the, the time that he has spent at the monastery in silence doing his penance, 
his, as we learn here, his well-deserved tenants. And again, the scene with the younger brother, the Yakuza leader, is very gripping. It's only two pages, but where it falls really breaks up the scenes with our hero team really well. And the, the scene itself is strong. I mentioned him cutting off his assistant's finger, which we don't actually see. It's the one piece of bloodshed, as a matter of fact, we don't directly see. But we see enough, and we know what happened. The assistant is seen with his hand bandaged during the scene where they're having their discussion. And then we see the Oyaban casually flip a severed finger from a bloody table into the fish tank. So he's on two pages out of 46, this younger brother, but he remains a definite malevolent presence in this story. The Verdict on Shadow, Song of the Dragon, Book 3. I really enjoyed this read. This was what I was hoping to get from a storyline like this, with these characters in this setting. And we've certainly set the stage for the brother-versus-brother showdown that will be coming in Book 4. An official quarter bin steal. Really enjoyed this one. And it's definitely both increased my overall sense of satisfaction with the series, which waned a little bit after Book 2. And it's really upped my expectations for Book 4. So Mike Grell, don't let me down, buddy. That wraps up my coverage of Shadow, Song of the Dragon, Book 3, bringing Episode 44 of the Quarterbend Podcast to a close. And yes, we will knock out Book 4 before we get to the epic, epic Episode 50. In Episode 45... We'll be looking at Thor 364 from Marvel Comics cover dated April 1986. Let me give you just a one-word spoiler for that next issue. Frog. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor!